Well, Gospel City, open your Bibles to Psalm 8 this morning as we hear from the Lord. We, we did, we planted, man, it's going on two years this September. We started RCC, Redemption City Church, in September of 2020. And our first service to today, I always start my sermons the same way. Every single time, my people have heard this a thousand times. Every time before I read God's word, I, I say these words, you have heard a lot of things this past week. But now hear the word of God. I say that, beloved, because we, we come in to this moment hearing a lot of ideas, a lot of human wisdom. A lot of opinions, a lot of man's thoughts. And if we're not careful, we would come to the word of God as if it was on the same platform as every other idea. If we're not careful, we would just approach God's word only to affirm what we already think. But no, beloved, everything else submits itself to the word of God. Every other thought submits itself to the word of God. So hear me say this morning, Gospel City, you have heard a lot of things this past week. A lot of thoughts. A lot of opinions. A lot of man's ideas. I don't know, maybe this past week, Gospel City, you have heard that your life has no value. I don't know, beloved, maybe this past week you have heard, maybe within the quietness of your own thoughts, that God doesn't care about you. Now, Gospel City, hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 8. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name throughout the earth. You have covered the heavens with your majesty. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries to silence the enemy and the avenger. When I observe your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you set in place, what is man that you remember him? Son of man that you look after him, yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all sheep and oxen, as well as the animals in the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea that pass through the currents of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Would you pray with me? And ask God for his help as we open up his word. Lord, we need you. 
We need you to speak to us. We need you to be bigger. We need you to be better. We need you to be more beautiful than even all of the distractions that we brought into this place. Would you meet us where we are? Would you comfort us if you need to? Would you convict us if you need to? Do whatever you need to do, Lord, to make us look more like Jesus Christ. We trust this time to you. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen and amen. Psalm 8.1 reads, Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Oh, Lord, our Lord. That's simple enough, right, beloved? But I got I to give you a little background on Psalm 8, verse 1. And, and I, I believe that once I give you this background, it will open up your eyes to see the wonder of what the psalmist is writing about in verse 1. Psalm 8, verse 1 literally reads, Yahweh our Adonai, or don't. Yahweh, our Adonai. You're like, so, so what? It reads that, Stephen. And what, is that, what does that matter? Well, beloved, the, the pious Jews who would read Psalm 8, verse 1, who think so highly of the name of God that they would not speak the name of Yahweh. They would not speak the name of Jehovah. So holy and set apart is this name that the pious Jews would believe it blasphemy. Highest of evils to come out of a tainted mouth the name of the most high God. So whenever the scribes would come to Psalm 8 verse 1, whenever they would see the the name Yahweh, they wouldn't say Yahweh. They would say something like Hashem, which simply means the name. We can't can't speak the name of of Yahweh. We, We can't say that out of our dirty mouth. So we say Hashem, or they would replace Yahweh with Adonai. Different name for the Lord. So they would read Psalm 8 verse 1 as, O Adonai, our Adonai. See, because the name Adonai has a little more down-to-earth connotation. It's a little more palatable for human beings to speak this name. Though, beloved, they are talking about the same God. They dare not say Yahweh. So what happens when our, when our Bibles are translated into English? What, what happens when we want to respect the name of Yahweh as well, where our English Bibles kind of help us out with this. So if you're looking at your Bibles, you should notice that the first Lord is in all capitals. And then the second Lord just has a capital L. Did you notice that in your Bibles? They're trying to help us understand that the first Lord is Yahweh. Whenever you see all capital Lord in your Bibles, it's, it's referring to, to Yahweh or Jehovah. 
why am I giving you all of this language background? What difference does it make? I say that, beloved, because the glorious part about Psalm 8, verse 1, the glorious part about what David is trying to get across is that Yahweh is holy. He is set apart. We dare not even speak his name. But the second part of what David said is so magnificent. He is holy. He is set apart. But guess what? He is ours. He's our Lord, the very Lord that the pious Jews can't even speak his name. Guess what, Gospel City? He is ours. He's yours. He's mine. David is not concerned with the backlash of holier-than-thou Christians on Facebook saying, oh, oh my goodness, David, how dare you say Yahweh? How dare you write these words? And David was like, I don't care because guess what? He is my Lord. He's mine. From David's experience, he's sitting back and beholding all of creation. And he says, yes, the same Yahweh who is set apart, the one who is holy other, the one that we can't even speak his name, he knows my name. He's mine. And I am his. I take refuge in him. He, he puts his praise upon my lips. So David takes these two Hebrew words and he puts them together. He joins them in Psalm 8.1. And by joining them, he creates an anthem that the entire church of God should sing over and over again, a resounding chorus which all of us should know and that chorus is this we serve a God who is set apart we serve a God who is not like us we serve a God who is bigger than us more majestic than us more magnificent than us we serve the greatest of all but yet He's not so set apart that he's not here with us right now. He's not so set apart that I can't go to him like a child and cry out, Father. He's not so holy that I can't, in the midst of all of my sin, in the midst of all of my brokenness, still approach his throne. He is Yahweh, beloved, but he is Adonai. He's set apart, but he's near, and he's ruling right now. So David goes about Psalm 8, and he's going to show us just how, how is this the case? How can he be Yahweh and Adonai at the same time? So I'm going to break this psalm up into two parts, maybe three parts, depending on how I'm feeling this morning. If I feel real Baptist, I got to do three parts and not two. <laughs> this is part, this psalm, this book ended, it begins and ends, if you notice in Psalm 8, the same way. 
where David starts and he ends with the same words, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David is going to say a lot in Psalm 8. But he begins and ends the same way, beloved, because David wants to get across a point to us. David doesn't have a stuttering problem. David wants to repeat to get it into our minds that, oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David wants to get across to us that Yahweh is holy. He's set apart, but he's also near and he's also ruling right now. God, Gospel City is wholly present. And that's contradictory terms. For God to be holy means God is set apart. But how can God be set apart if he's present? How can it be other if he's here? Well, David is going to show us that he's not only holy present, but he's holy present in all of his attributes and all of who God is. God is here with us, beloved. He still wants a relationship with us, though he is holy. Then the first part of Psalm 8, if I can make up some words, I'm going to make up some words to serve as my two points this morning. The the first one is this. David wants to show us the Yahweh-ness of God. Now, if you leave here and say, Stephen told you Yahweh-ness was a word, I'm going to deny it and say you you weren't speaking the truth. David wants to show us the Yahweh-ness of the Lord. That's just the first word of Psalm 8.1, O oh Lord. But David also wants to show us the second part, and that is the Adonai-ness of God. The Adonai-ness of God. That is God is, he's ruling and he's reigning, but he's close as he does it. He's present as he does it. Now, can I, can I pause here for just a moment? After all that background, all that context, we're now finally getting ready to dive into Psalm 8.1. But let me pause for a moment. There are some of us in this room who need to recapture the Yahweh-ness of God. There are some of us in this room who need a fresh dose and reminder that God is holy. That God is set apart. That God is like nothing that we can imagine. There are some of us in this room who need to recapture that God is not like you and I. See, because oftentimes, beloved, we, we kind of treat God like the goodwill. We donate things to him that we just don't want anymore. We give him our leftovers. We give them the used, we give them the tattered, we give them the broken, and we say, this should be good enough for God. God, you will accept anything, won't you? And for those who are thinking that way this morning, you and I need a fresh dose of the Yahweh-ness of God, that God takes seconds from no one. He is the creator of the universe. He speaks it into existence. The psalmist says he created with just his fingertips. God plays second fiddle to no one, brothers and sisters. 
Some of us who need a, a, a re-dosing that, man, God, God, you're, you're different. You're not just going to take my leftover time. You're not just going to take anything. You're, you're Yahweh. You, you are holy. But then, beloved, there are some of us in this room who need to recapture the Adoninus of God. Some of us need to remind ourselves that God desires to rule and reign in relationship with us. There are some of us who need a reminder that God is indeed close to us. There's some of us in this room who, because of our shame and guilt and sin, we think that God is running away from us. But no, let me say directly to you, you need to recapture the Adoninus of God. That he is near to the brokenhearted. That he is close to the sinful. It is not the well who need Adonai. It is the sick. And for those of us in this room who are sick and think that God has abandoned them, would you hear the second part of Psalm 8, verse 1? He is our Lord. He's here. He desires relationship with his people. Now, Let's get into Psalm 8, verse 1. See, that's, a, that's an old trick that preachers use. Like, if they want to preach for like two hours, they just make the introduction like 45 minutes. And that's what I just did for you. <laughs> now, now, Gospel City, the sermon can begin. Point one, the Yahweh-ness of God. David is not in a position, nor does it cross his mind to think about creation apart from a creator. Praise to David is an expression not in the joy in the stars, but in the one who created the stars. David is not simply stargazing or moon gazes just to jot down in his notebook where Orion is and where the Big Dipper is. No, out of all of this, David's desire from seeing the heavens, it brings him to worship God. We all know people, don't we, who, who marvel at creation and then stop there? Who can look at the heavens and say, wow, but then not go to the one who created the heavens? Love this quote by G.K. Chesterton. He says the, the worst moment for the atheist is when he is really thankful and has nobody to thank. Same person who stargazes and this sense of wonder comes over them, but they don't know where it comes from. David is not interested in tracing the heavens. No, David says that creation is merely a pointer to the creator. David uses this personal pronoun, you or your, some 19 times in these few verses. God, you have done this. This is yours. You have set your glory above the heavens. Did you, did you catch that? I mean, like, 
The heavens are glorious, are they not? I mean, who can, who can measure the expanse of the heavens? Who can measure its width or its breadth? But notice what David says. He says, your glory is above the heavens. The Yahweh-ness of the Lord is that there is nothing more glorious, more beautiful, more majestic than his name. God is so love how David weaves this in. God is so powerful and majestic that he can take an army of babies to battle and he can still win. Look at verse 2. From the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have established a stronghold on account of your adversaries. Only the Lord Yahweh has the ability to defeat all of his enemies by the cry of a baby. Isn't that majestic, beloved? The text literally reads, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established a bulwark, a fortress. The sound of children and infants is tangible evidence that God has a fortress here on earth and that God is and will always be victorious. A baby can make it known to all of the heavens and all of the angels that God is going to win. He's not going to lose. Imagine that, Gospel City. You, you take all the, all the enemies of God. You take all of those who would rip God out of heaven if it was possible. You take all of those who are coming against the church. You take all of those who hate Jesus Christ, all of those who want to have nothing to do with God, all of those who hate him, all of those who are at war with God. You take those masses upon masses of people. And David says the cry of a baby says that God is going to win. You know, so often in, in worship, you know, so often in, in, in big people worship, like, you know, we're in right now in like adult worship. So often the cry of, of babies can be distracting to us, can it not? Man, we're sitting here trying to praise God and that one baby keeps crying. What a distraction that is. And David says, no, Christian. No worshiper of God. It is in this place that when that distraction comes, it is not a distraction at all. It is a declaration to the highest heavens that God is going to win. Like, man, the a, a cry of a baby lets Satan know that, man, bro, your, your end is settled. Your, your end is established. God is going to be victorious. Like we are living in a warfare and the baby's cry is our battle cry. If we march in the battle, we should have, not literally, this is metaphoric, we should have babies on the front line. <laughs> Don't put them babies on the front line of a real war. 
As we're marching into this spiritual warfare, we have the babies on the front line. Every time they coo and every time they chatter, it is letting the adversary know, the one who wages war against our souls, that you will not win. So the psalmist takes a trip to the nursery to let us know that God is Yahweh. Oh, he's, he's majestic. He has all power, but now David is going to take a trip to the planetarium to let us know that there is none like God. I heard that baby cry. I heard that. That's, that is right on cue. My God, I was, I was praying for that. Like, Lord, may, please make a baby cry to make my point and write whatever that baby is. Leave that baby in here. That baby needs to let us know that Satan is defeated. Amen. Amen. Yahweh is set apart. He is altogether powerful, so much that everything beloved in the night sky was was put there by, as David says, the fingers of God. Like God didn't create with his whole body, David has given us the picture. He didn't create with his strong right arm. He didn't create by force. No, David says just his fingertips created everything that we see. These fingertips make things that scientists stumble over every single day. I'm convinced, beloved, that those in the, in the science field, man, they're going to have to give it a, a, a larger account to God after beholding everything that God has done for their viewing and what are they doing with it? They see the wonders that God created with his fingers. They read about how a black hole can swallow a passing star. They read that a black hole can literally swallow light. You imagine that? They know the expanse of the universe, that a car traveling at 100 miles per hour, it would take it 29 million years to reach the nearest star. They know that the universe is expanding at 70 kilometers a second. A bolt of lightning is five times hotter than anything on planet Earth. And the psalmist says that God did this not with his whole being. He did it with his fingertips. It's like when my son came to me the other day. I was on my computer just working hard, diligently like I do, you know what I'm saying? And he comes to me and he says, Dad, I need, I need you to help, help me tie my shoes, right? And, you know, I've been tying shoes for a long time. So I'm still working, still distracted. He puts his foot up on my leg, and I'm still looking at the computer screen, and what do I do? I tie his shoes without even looking. I'm pretty skilled like that. That's pretty amazing. Some of y'all ain't got that skill set, but I've been training, you know. So he put his foot there, and I tie his shoes without even looking. It was zero effort on my part. That's the picture that the psalmist is painting of how God created the universe. It's nothing to him. Everything that we see, God did it with the tips of his fingertip. Come on, y'all. I mean, that's a powerful God. Have y'all been following this whole James Webb telescope? 
these new galaxies that are being discovered. Man, it's an amazing thing to me as we're discovering galaxy after galaxy and, and all of this, all of these millions of stars that we're just now witnessing. The psalmist looks up and he gazes and he says, all of this is done by the fingertips of God. If God can do all of this by his fingertips, let me ask you a practical question. What do you think that God cannot do in your life? If he can create the cosmos by his fingertips, tell me again, if God has a problem with your addiction issue, you don't think God can work a miracle? If God can create by his fingertips, tell me again that your, your marriage as it is right now is beyond saving. If God can do this by his fingertips, beloved, why have you stopped praying for that family member? Why have you stopped talking to that neighbor? Are they too far gone? No, they're not too far gone. If you're sitting in this room, they're not too far gone. His fingertips, beloved, did all of this. What, what, can't, what can't Yahweh do? Stars upon stars, galaxies upon galaxies, worlds upon worlds that we have discovered or ever will discover that is outside of the imagination of mankind. Eugene Peterson says that all of this is like God's playground. He does all of this easily, yet, yet Gospel City, even though all of this is there, all the cosmos, yet the stage, the theater upon which God loves to act, his works of redemption are right here on earth. The cosmos are there. James Webb Telescope is discovering all sorts of things, and yet God is concerned about your soul. This is why the psalmist Ask this simple question, what is, what, is, what is man? What is man that you are mindful of him? Why are you even thinking about us, God, when you're creating all of this stuff? Psalmist kind of puts the reader in this place of despair. It's, it's leaving us to think if we pause for a moment like, yeah, like why, why would God be concerned about me? If he's doing all of this, why? God surely doesn't care about me. If he's working all of this and doing who, who am I that God would care about me? So point two, David brings it home with the Adoninus of God. What is man that you are mindful of him? And this is, this is the helpful exercise, Gospel City. It's a helpful exercise for us to just pause and realize our frailty. To pause and, and realize that no matter how much we accomplish, how many letters are behind or in front of our names, how many generations have come from us, 
It's a helpful exercise to just pause and say, God, in the midst of everything, I am small. Why in the world, why in the cosmos would you care about me in the midst of everything? That is a helpful thing to marinate on. The psalmist is not talking about here in Psalm 8, like the mental capacity of God. Like what what is man that you are mindful of him? I mean, the psalmist knows that God knows everything. But this word that the psalmist hears when he says mindful, it's not mindful. The question is, what is man that you would remember him? Who who, who are us that, that God, you would remember us? In all that you're doing, in all the worlds, why in the worlds would you remember me? See, because remembrance means importance. I forget a lot of things, beloved. I forget holidays. I forget my children's birthdays sometimes. Don't judge me. <laughs> I go to the doctor's office, and they ask that faithful question. I got four kids. They'd be like, okay, Mr. Love, um, we're checking in Elias. Can you, can you tell us his birthday just to confirm? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, I don't, I don't know his birthday. And the receptionist is looking at me like I stole this kid off the street. Like, I'm like, I promise, this is my son. Look at him. He looks just like me. I promise. I, like, ended up on a Maury Povich. Like, look at his ears. His ears are, like, just like mine. Look at his nose. His nose is mine. It's like, no, nah, if you don't know his birthday, I can't check him in. And, like, the parents in the waiting room are judging me. They're, like, hiding their kids' eyes from this monster who doesn't remember his kid's birthday. I'm like, I'm not, a, I'm not an animal. I'm not a monster. So the last time this happened, and it happens quite frequently, unfortunately, the, the receptionist, she looks at me and she says, Mr. Love, I, I know you got a lot on your mind. And I'm like, yeah, that's right. I do have a lot on my mind. I'm an important person. I don't have to remember my kids for birthdays. <laughs> you have a lot on your mind. And so you forget things, right? And I think, beloved, that's how we approach our relationship to God. We're like, God, we know you got a lot on your mind. Why would you remember me? In all that you're doing, in all the worlds, Lord, why, why would you remember me? But I tell you, Gospel City, there is one date that I will never forget. There is one date that does not sneak up on me, nor do I lose focus, and that is March 20th. That's my wedding anniversary. Oh, I ain't going to forget that date. <laughs> you better believe I love that date. I love my wife. I love my bride. That's the date that I cast all my my affections upon one person and one person alone. That's the date that I said, you are mine and I am yours, and nothing is going to change that. What God has joined together, let no man put asunder. That's a date I look forward to every year. It reminds me of the covenant that I made with my wife. I I remember that date because I love her so dearly. There is no other human on this planet that I will sacrifice for like for my wife. That, Gospel City, is the emphasis of this word remember. That is what the psalmist is saying. God is not going to forget you. Why? Why is God not going to forget? Well, because he's, he's cast his cares upon you. He's cast his love upon you. 
He's made a covenant with you all throughout Scripture. It is telling this story about us being the bride. Why? Because God loves us and all that God is doing, he is not so busy nor is his mind so preoccupied that he does not care about you. He does. He remembers you. He sees that depression. He remembers. He sees that hurt. He remembers. He sees that sin that you have fallen into, but yet you are desiring, Lord, free me from. He sees you. He remembers you. Because he, he loves us, beloved. This is what the psalm is. This is the emphasis of it. Why do you care about us? Why do you remember us? Well, because, Lord, you love us. Not only that, but then the psalmist says, what is mankind that you visit him? Not just care for. Literally, what, what is man that you visit him? Oh, but beloved, even though the psalmist is writing in Psalm 8, 8 verse 1 through 8 about the visitation of God, the real visitation is on its way. If David could only imagine in all the glory of the way in which God is going to visit us. If David could only ponder the, the majestic nature of God coming to visit mankind, man, this Psalm 8 would be an eternal psalm. But then notice in verse 5, you have made him a, a little lower than the heavenly beings. Notice the difference, beloved. If you're, if you're reading your Bibles, he has made mankind a little lower than the heavenly beings. He has not made us a little higher than sheep and oxen. He's made us a little lower than heavenly beings, but we're not just above sheep and oxen and birds. What the psalmist is getting at is identity. What he's getting at is purpose. Listen, beloved, in a room this size, I know there are some of you in this room struggling with your purpose and identity. There are some of you in this room struggling like, man, my life has no value. And hear me carefully. This is the care and concern that God has for you. You who are struggling with your value, you who are struggling with your purpose, this is how much God cares for you. He will bring a brother all the way from South Bend. It ain't that far away, but it's a long way. He will bring a brother all the way from South Bend to say to you, you are created in the image of God. He loves you. You have value. He made you. He created you. He knit you together. You are not just above animals. No, not in the sight of God. You are precious. You have value. Why? Because our God is a loving God. He made us a, a little lower than the heavenly beings, but beloved, the real Adonai-ness of God. The real closeness of relationship with God, the real God reigning in relationship is found in Jesus Christ. 
The real closeness of God, even though he's holy, would come and draw near to broken sinners. I love what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 8. Talking about Jesus, he says these words, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you hear what the writer is saying in Philippians? Though Jesus Christ was in the form of God, he chose to draw near to you. He chose to leave his throne in glory and come to you and save you. I love that thought that this is the real visitation of God. Why did Christ come? So he could rule like a king on planet earth right now. No, that's not why he came, beloved. He, he came to take all of your sin and all of your guilt and all of your shame upon himself. He came to die on the cross. Jesus Christ left the Father in order to bring you to the Father. I mean, he was there in eternity past. He was watching the Lord put all of the cosmos together by his fingertips. And Jesus Christ volunteered to leave that in order to come save your soul. He left all of his inheritance in heaven so that you might have an eternal inheritance, brothers and sisters. He left glory so that you can taste glory. He left his throne so that you can reign with him. Jesus Christ, our Savior, became poor so that you can become rich. This is the real Adoninus of God. This is the real visitation of God. This is the real Lord reigning and ruling in our lives that Jesus Christ will become man in order to save us. He will take on flesh in order to die in your place. He will take all your sin upon himself and give you all of his righteousness. He would leave all of that to come to broken sinners. I mean, if, if Christ would do that for Stephen... If Christ would save me, though I had nothing that was deserving of saving. If Christ would come run after me, even though I'm running away from him. Even though I've cursed him time and time again. If Christ would come save this broken sinner, what else can I exclaim but what the psalmist exclaims? Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You remember us. Can we pray together? Indeed, Lord, your name is majestic. But how precious is it that we get to taste of that majesty in Jesus Christ?
So, oh Lord, out of everything we have said, your name is majestic in all the earth. We lift high your name. We lift high the name of Jesus Christ because there is no other name under heaven by which any man is saved. Thank you for visiting us in Jesus Christ. Thank you for magnifying your name. We pray all these things in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen.